from the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga. So a couple months ago, I got a text from a dear friend who used to run sound for a few of the different artists I played for back in my guitar slinging days. He said, dude, I am on tour right now, and this other band has a guitar player who rolls in these cases in the morning. He sets up this shop uh, in the basement of the venue, and he is building pipes by hand all day, every day. And then when it's showtime, he goes out and plays guitar. And I was like, what? He's like, you have to have this guy on your podcast. I said, who is he? He said, it's Jody Davis. It's like, from the Newsboys? It's like, yeah, he's one of America's best pipe makers. So my guest today is Jody Davis. I know him from the Newsboys. You probably know him from the Newsboys. But there are a lot of people who may never have heard of that band, and they know him from his pipes. It turns out that Jody has become, over the last 20 years, one of the premier pipe makers in America. So Jody came over to the studio, and um, I love that we got to talk about the Newsboys, because that's just super fun to hear about. Uh, We got to talk about his pipes, and how on earth you not only get into something like this, but become the world's best at it. And also, what led to it? Because like just about everything we talk about on here, some of the most interesting doors opened out of hardship and grief, and you never would have chosen them. And the incredible things that you find on the other side may not make the hard things go away. They certainly did not in this case. But that doesn't take away from how wild and fascinating life can be. For instance, some of the pipes that Jody makes are out of thawed woolly mammoth tusk. And I'm going to say that again. This dude, the guitar player from Shine, make him wonder what you got. He makes pipes out of thawed woolly freaking mammoth tusk. And I was so into our conversation that I forgot to even ask about that part. It's fun to talk a little bit about a world that you know so much about, and then uh, in the same conversation hear about a world that you've like never even knew existed. But before we get to the interview, I'd like to share an email that I got the other day from a new listener named Kelly. And Kelly said, I just discovered your podcast after listening to your interview on Annie F. Downs' That Sounds Fun podcast. You guys talked about Bebo Norman during that interview, so I subscribed to your podcast and started with Bebo's episode. I just want to say thank you. Thanks for having deep conversations about these awkward and scary transitions in life with some practical insight and suggestions on how to live them out. I'm a 27-year-old wife, mom of three, and nurse. I just recently transitioned from a hospital job to a special needs school nurse. However, I'm still feeling unsettled. I'm extremely excited to add your podcast to my list of resources. Praying for you and yours today as I'm thankful for Jesus and how he uses people to bring us back to him. I'm excited to continue listening to your podcast that I have no doubt will be filled with great conversations and hopeful insight. God bless. Thank you, Kelly. That is so kind. It sounds like you were doing amazing things. And also, I imagine your plate is incredibly full. So thank you so much for taking the time to write. I'm so glad you found this podcast, and I hope that it's a gift for you. Now, there's one more story I'd like to share before we get to Jody, And this is from a young woman named Michelle. And I'm going to let her take it from here. We were forced to live with 17 of our other relatives in a very small shanty. There's a lot of rape for children. Some of uh, my friends were actually sold into prostitution. 
One morning, I just woke up that, you know, my uncle is just touching me in some parts of my body that I just thought to myself that this can't be happening. My relatives would always tell me, Michelle, you are so ugly. You look exactly like your father. You will become nothing but a thief and a drug addict when you grow up. And those were the words that I heard from people whom I expected to love and take care of me. And that made me feel so shameful of who I am. One Sunday morning, my Aunt Carol, she's the only Christian person that I know during that time, she woke me up and said that we have to go to this church. And she registered me you know, to become um, the 37th child in that um, Compassion Project. Shortly after that, Michelle was sponsored. And Michelle and her sponsor wrote letters back and forth for years. My sponsor told me, Michelle, you are beautiful. You are precious to us. We are proud of you, and we are praying for you, and we love you. And the words touched the very depth of my heart and soul. My life was changed. By someone like you, sponsoring a child through Compassion International. Friends, a Compassion International sponsorship costs $38 a month. That's one night's dinner for Allison and I at our local Mexican restaurant. So some things you need to know. Compassion is 100% Christ-centered. Their projects are facilitated through and only through the local church. They have over 7,500 of these church projects worldwide, and each one is operated by local staff that share the language and the culture of the children there. Something else you need to know? Compassion is child-focused. They take a holistic approach to child development, believing in meeting the physical, mental, emotional, educational, medical, and spiritual needs of each child. That's a lot of needs they meet. Sponsorships are one-to-one meaning your sponsorship dollars go directly for the care of the specific child that you sponsor. We just heard from Michelle. The words her sponsor wrote to her were life-changing. Each child attends the Compassion Program at least three times per week, and most importantly, every child that is known and loved is exposed there to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot for more information. And please use that link. Compassion is partnering with us to help bring you The Pivot. And when you visit through this link, Compassion.com slash The Pivot, it helps the podcast, and far, far more importantly, it helps to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. Sponsor a child through Compassion today. So please visit Compassion.com slash The Pivot and sponsor a child today. And now, here's my conversation with Jody Davis. try to think on the way over here like how do I want to start this because I'm curious about the band yeah and I'm super curious about how you got into making pipes yeah. and what that's been well, it all it all ties together I figured it'll, it all, it'll all wander its way in there somehow <laughs> <laughs> well let's let's start at the beginning so where did you grow up uh, I grew up in uh, southern Indiana so uh, like where very rural area I always say Evansville but it was really about I don't know, 40 minutes north of there. These little towns, Princeton, Petersburg, Oakland totally. City. Yeah. I mean, kind of ran around all those little towns. Yeah. And uh, and then, so how did you how did you end up in a band with a bunch of Australians in the, <laughs> what, in the was that late 80s probably, early 90s? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I keep, always try to figure that out. You know, I've never been very good about keeping track of time. Um, <laughs> but I know that my, my, uh, my mom, she kind of has this, sort of 
or had this sort of sh shrine of gold records and all this stuff on this one wall. And there's one con uh, tour ad from 93. So I think I started at the end of 92. With okay, okay. Got it. Which would have been, you know, I was just saying I listened to the Steve Taylor's podcast. Well, that Not Ashamed record was the first record that he worked with oh, us really? on. And okay. I came in right as that, actually, actually as that was being finished. Got it. Okay. And so, okay. Yeah. The, the cat, the revolving cast members of that, there's been a lot of people that have, well, I mean, because remember there was like yes a band, no. there was a band that was kind of all Australian dudes and then it yeah. sort of became not that. Yeah. It was, they came, came over originally and, you know, kind of was trying to hammer some things out and made a few records and all that. And when it really wasn't what most of them thought it was going to be, they left. Yeah, and so when they left, it was basically you know you had you had Peter, and at that time John James was still mm -hmm. there. Wes, the manager, and his brother Steve. Um, so basically, we just reformed a new band. Yeah, essentially at that time, and I joined '92 at the end of '92. Uh, then Duncan came on. Okay. See, everybody thinks he was original because he's Australian, but he's Australian. a new Peter. He played in another band, <laughs> you know, a rival band back in Australia. And so they'd always it. known each other I forever. And uh, so he, Duncan happened to be in town playing with a, with a band called Scary Cats. Oh, and that's good uh, uh, so then he ended up joining over. And at the time, he was kind of like covering keyboards and then playing percussion. Mm -hmm. Because okay. that record was really um, kind of this Euro pop thing. It had a lot of loops. But in that day, like things like if you were going to run tracks or something like that, that was so faux pas back then. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, my gosh, you guys. No, Milly was... Vanilli, you know. It's like <laughs> so. So we played everything live. So he would play the loops. Yes. And then Pete would play the drum parts. Uh huh. And uh, and he would do when he wasn't doing the loop or percussion things, he would do some keyboard stuff. And then Jeff Frankenstein came in a few months after that, and yeah. he started covering all the keyboards. Then Duncan stayed on a kit pretty much most of the time, or played. So then, Got you it. know, things just kind of progressed on. You know, after we had that, well, then Phil came in a little bit later. Yeah. Then, so still, like, kind of within that all the, a year, mm -hmm. it became the band that basically had success okay yeah that's the band that i sort of as a as a yeah. i'm a few years younger than you like i was in high school probably when that yeah. band sort of solidified and i remember being aware of that and and yeah so loving some of those records so now how did you end up in nashville how'd you get in the place where a, an australian band who's looking to reform can go yeah that guy like how does that happen you know it's also oh, trying to make a long story short i was living in evansville I had met, do you remember a band called David and the Giants? This guy, Keith Thibodeau, played drums. Well, Keith was Little Ricky on the I Love Lucy show oh, like back in the day. Like, No way. If you ever see the show where there's this little kid, he was like a, a child prodigy drummer. Yeah. So he's like five or six years old playing Dixieland jazz drums. I mean, it's mind-blowing. You can find it on YouTube. It's, it's incredible. So he played drums for David and the Giants. Well, we had uh, this band I had in Evansville. We recorded in their studio. We, you know, we went down, saved up a bunch of money, and recorded our, mm -hmm. you know, indie record down there. And uh, they really liked it. At the same time, Keith was doing a lot of songwriting, and he wanted to do like a solo record. So David was like, 
well, instead of us playing on it, why don't you get these guys? They were really cool. So um, so he started sending us his songs, just him playing piano and singing yeah, songs. Yeah. We started kind of producing them up, me and a guy named Jim Cooper, who ended up playing for Petra and producing oh, a bunch yeah, of bands yeah. and stuff. We were good buddies and played together for years. He ended up basically, after hearing the demos, was like, hey, let's start a band. So we all quit our jobs and... There's, there's the first pivot for you. We all quit our jobs. <laughs> and what, what had your job been at that point? I was a, a critical care tech in intensive care. Whoa. Um, neurosurgical intensive care. So you were then. a tech. So what does that mean? Were you working on the... You know, I got I got hired on to be what's called a unit secretary. So you like literally were... were we're kind of like the secretary for the, the intensive care unit where you, you ordered all the the meds for the patients you set up there, uh, like uh, any testing that needed to be done, and MRIs and x-rays and all this kind of, you, you like managed all that so stuff. So like a doctor would sort of say, we need to do these things. He, he would write orders. And you would go, all right, I'm going yeah. to make all that happen. Right, I'd transcribe them huh. to, a, to a sheet for the nurses to look at. It's like busy work for, for the nurses. So you know, transcribe it for a sheet for them to know what care they were going to give to this patient and when their meds were going to be. And you order all the meds and you would order all the testing and you'd order all the stuff. You just did all that kind of busy work. And then they, there was a nursing shortage, so... They were like, hey, we, we're making this new position, and basically you're a secretary, but you can also do, like, nurse's assistant work, and you can be a monitor tech, which basically is where you read, you watch EKG monitors, and you can see irregularities, and then you alert people. So if you work in a cardiac unit, Got it. you know, and they're scared somebody's going to have a heart attack at any moment, you watch their monitor and say, well, this is starting to not look right. Anyway, they paid for me to go through a little bit of schooling to do that and so I did that for a couple of years but you know every job I ever worked was just so I could play music really so you weren't like drawn (laughs) to the medical field it was like there was an opening and you yeah it was just I needed a job so I jumped in and tried my my best I mean that is yeah that was unexpected so (laughs) (laughs) okay so you so you quit your job and you start this other band and moved to Jackson Mississippi to Jackson Mississippi yeah okay and Why Jackson, Mississippi? That's where Keith Keith was based. Out okay, there. so then how long were you with with him? Maybe two years before everything just kind of started falling apart. I mean, we were just making no money. I think I made six thousand dollars that year. <laughs> yeah. I remember those years. So, so you know, it's pretty hard to keep that going. And uh, me and Jim ended up uh, getting this audition for a band called Jag. It was one of Billy Smiley's bands back in the day, and we got that gig. We started playing with them. Was Did, Billy in the band? No. Okay. He was just he. You know, he was producing a bunch of bands back yeah. then. Right. He produced my first band's first record. There you go. Yeah. So did that, and then that was kind of kind of going broke doing that too. And so I ended up I was working like for Manpower. I, basically, what I would do is I'd go out on the road. And as soon as I come in, I'd call up Manpower, which is like a, I mean, you probably know what that is. It's a... Temp work for manual Yeah, temp labor. work. That's yeah. what it is. That's what I couldn't think of that. So, yeah. So I was doing a bunch of, you know, temp work, just looking for something. Then I started, then I uh, ended up, started playing with David Mullen. Okay. Was this pre-Kevin Twit? After. After Kevin. Okay. After Kevin, yeah. Got it. And was kind of doing that, and I was working these temp jobs, and one of the guys, I was working at a this factory bending rebar and one of the guys I was working with was also a musician and he was like and he knew 
the guys in the news lived in the same apartment complex or something, you know, in Antioch. You know, that was the mm-hmm. yeah. everybody had a channel through Antioch to still be in the music business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was like, uh, Oh, you know, newsboys are looking for a guitar player. And I was like, uh, uh, Well, all right, I'll, you know, I'll check it out. And then I heard the demos for uh-huh. the Not a Shame record, and I was like, Well, this is good. I like this. So I was like, All right, so I. Learned up some songs. Went over to Pete's apartment. I think I got the gig because uh, I was the only guitar player they tried out that got like this one riff right, oh, <laughs> which was like that's Dave Perkins had played it, and it was like this kind of finger picking thing, and, oh. I was like, and it was not even that hard. But it was just like just guys didn't play it right, so yeah, they were like, "All right, well, why don't you come out with us? We'll see how it goes." <laughs> <laughs> you know? Just amazing. these random, you know, kind of funny things. Dude, that's amazing. But uh, but here's one side note. When I was playing with Lively Stones, which was the band with Keith Thibodeau, okay, we played Atlanta Fest on a side stage. Newsboys was hosting it because they owned a PA. That's yeah, why. I you remember know. all that. So yeah. they were hosting it, and we played on it. And that day, John James came up to me, and he was like, hey, you know, our guitar player is going back to Australia. You know, would you be interested in... You know, playing with this, and I was like, "No." <laughs> and then, like, oh, I don't know, amazing. a year or two later, yeah. Hey, man. <laughs> okay. All right. So at that point, you, you joined the band. They were doing pretty well at that point. I mean, they were well, right? The, you know, I mean, that record. Point, when did it kind of hit? Was it on that record that? That was the first record that. Actually sold some, some records, yeah, and okay. you know it, like, just was coming out as I joined the band. Got it. You know, so okay, so then your first season with the band, how long were you in it? Ten years. Ten years. Mm-hmm. Okay, and those were big. Those were big years for the band. Yeah, I mean that was hits. all the Virgin Record stuff and all you know. And you were, were taking you... me to your leader and yeah, going public and all those lovely Rudy disco. And what, in a nutshell, what did that look like? Were you guys, it looked like you guys were traveling a lot. Were you, oh, yeah. Were you home much? What was your family life like at that point? Yeah, we, we, um, like what did it look like to live as somebody in that band? <laughs> you worked hard, let me tell you. I mean, those early days, we did a lot of shows. I mean, we would do, you know, over 200 shows in a year. I mean, we were driving the trucks, and we were setting everything up, especially that Not Ashamed tour and all that. I remember when we first had to go to a semi-trailer, and I was like, yes, I don't have to drive anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were long days, man. Yeah, we man. would we would, we would would roll in at, you know, of course, 9 in the morning, and you'd get up and, you know, start unloading, and everybody kind of had their job, you know, yeah. you knew how to do just about everything. You, you could set up the whole monitor system, front house, stack PA, uh, lighting stuff, and everybody kind of, you know, helped each other out to get, by the time you were done, you know, you would eat dinner, shower up, well, the kind of, whoever the opening might have been, let's see, we had a lot of different opening groups, you know, they'd be playing, you'd get ready. You go out, you play your show, then you go to your merch table until the last person left. Then I remember I'd go in, I'd bust my rig down, and then I'd head to the truck and start calling the pack. You know, call the pack, close the doors on the truck, so I was the last guy in the bus. 
Oh, man. You know, and you might get there. It takes you a little bit to wind down. You sleep for like an hour and a half, and somebody's knocking on your bunk. Hey, it's your turn to drive. (laughs) 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 And you're like, oh, man. We had a rule. You had to drive two hours. If, if that's all you could do, that's what you had you had to do. If you could do more, do it. But it, two hours, that was the thing. So, so you guys were driving the bus. We were riding both. So you had you guys the, did you get CDL licenses and all that? I mean, to do that or no? You, you just kind of did. Well, it. We, we didn't. When we went to semi trailers, we didn't drive those. But okay. We had the biggest possible box trucks. You got it. Okay. Drive. I see. Yeah, yeah. And usually pulled a trailer or whatever. Then finally, once we got to where we could have a semi trailer. And an actual bus driver, then life started getting a lot better <laughs> at that point. And I, and I think days. when I first joined the band, I think I was making like two hundred bucks a week, something like that. Sure, so. <laughs> yeah, and working hard for it. <laughs> but you get to play guitar yeah, for yeah. an hour and fifteen minutes every night. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So it was all at worth. Some it. Some point is that worth it? <laughs> uh, okay. So at that, are what's your family life like at that point? Uh, well, then let's see. Um, I was married to a professional ballerina. Oh, wow. And, you know, we didn't have any kids. And, you know, at at one point she was dancing with Atlanta. We had an apartment down there. We had an apartment in Nashville. We're kind of going back and forth. Wow. Um, then, let's see, in two, so, so no kids the entire time through the 90s, uh, 2000. One, my first daughter was born, and uh, when she was about a month old, she had a like a near SIDS incident. Oh wow! So, uh, you know, it was it was pretty severe. She was actually without a heartbeat for about thirty minutes. Thirty minutes. Yeah, and barely. I mean, like they were giving up. And barely got something happening. Wow. And uh, so that, you know, was a very, very uh, traumatic time. And uh, so that, you know, left her pretty severely handicapped with, with um, brain damage huh. from oxygen deprivation. So, you know, they would call that cerebral palsy. That's a big blanket term for a lot of different things but falls under that and uh so um so that that changed things a lot we we really um tried to keep things going uh hired nurses anytime i was not there there was a nurse there um every day to help with all the care and all the different things and uh did that for a little while and you know and it was just really really stressful to be gone it was taking a terrible toll on the marriage um so just made the decision all right you know this is all got to change so mm-hmm. i didn't know what i was going to do but i'm like i'm going to we're going to we're, we're going to move to arizona which was where my wife's family was from and uh, so we can get some help because it was 24-hour care. Well, wow. still is. But um, so, uh, yeah, so I, my guys got to gotta leave the band, got to go take care of this, 
didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I'd started making pipes um, in the in the late sort of '90s and had started, you know, actually selling pipes and and de developing a fo had a following. But I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to try to you know, go with this full time and see what that looks like. Okay, well, let let all right, let's let's shift gears. Catch, start. <laughs> tell me about how you got into pipe making and then we'll okay. catch up to where that yeah all right to where those come together um i you know i had a lot of people you know a few sort of mentors and things in my life coming up and that were that were pipe smokers like i had a, had a choir teacher that was really pretty in, influential in in my music and kind of, you know, helping me and pushing me in that direction, you know, encouraging me in that way. We played in a band. Like he was a younger guy for a high school teacher and and we formed like a like a top forty band and played <laughs> played played in clubs, you know, yeah. when I was like sixteen. Amazing. And uh, <laughs> but you know, but you know, he turned me on to a lot of really good music and, and stuff and he he was always a pipe smoker and and uh, my dad had a short run. My grandfather smoked a pipe. So I, I think just one day I was like, "Man, I want to, I want to see what that's all about. I want to, I want to get a pipe." You know, you just you yeah. Know you are. When you're young, I bought you one just... when I was in, like in my early twenties because of the the back, like the picture on the back of a C.S. Lewis book where he's like lighting up. And it just like it exactly so you know? awesome. You're like, like well, something if, about that. That's cool. Maybe maybe that's why C.S. Lewis <laughs> is so great. You know. <laughs> You try this and yeah, yeah, it might help. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I I, um, I I started getting started getting into it. Went to this this uh, um, it's still here uh, this smoke shop in Nashville. It was different back in the day. It was in a different location and was really a cool place. It's kind of what what it was a lot like what coffee houses ended up turning into. Because, you know, they, they actually, it was one of the only places back then, this was before Starbucks and all this stuff, it's one of the only places back then you could get good coffee. They they sold, like, really, really good coffee bean, and they sold all these. Because the process is kind of the same, right? Roasting beans and, I mean, it's a little bit, <laughs> well, <laughs> I can see, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you know, they, they, they just dealt in the finer things, you know, fine Got coffee. It. yeah, yeah. They, they, back then, you know, there wasn't like a lot of craft beer or anything. So they had like import beers in a cooler that you could buy mm -hmm. people, you know, and these guys would come in, these, these older guys would come in and they'd play backgammon and you'd just stay around and talk. I mean, it was just like a cool environment. I mean, like one of the guys was the, he was like the ambassador to France under Ronald Reagan, you know. He would just hang out there? Yeah. And there, and there was, uh, you know, like surgeons and like really intelligent people that would yeah. just hang out and you'd have these conversations. It was really great. Amazing. So I, so I would frequent there, there a lot and I got to know the buyer really well. And at that time they were, uh, they sold more high-end pipes than any place in the U.S. They were because of this guy who kind of really? developed these relationships with these carvers, master carvers. And, uh, you know, I become friends with him and, you know, I've kind of got this personality. It's, it's almost a problem, really. This personality that when I get into something, I really want to get into it, you know, and I, I delve deep into all these mm -hmm. things. So I, I started um, collecting these old estate pipes. I just, you know, I love antiques and 
loved old stuff. And so the pipes, old pipes really, um, it, you know, I just, I don't know. I felt something about it. I don't, I don't even know how to e explain it really, but I just, I still love them actually. And I was on the road, I'd go to antique stores all the time and I started finding all these old smoking pipes. Hmm. And this was pre like eBay. So yeah, you actually, eBay you, you're and... in some small town, you can actually f discover things. Yeah. And so, you know, they wouldn't know that these old pipes were collectible. The antique dealers didn't know anything about them. They'd buy them in estate sales because like the old pipe smokers were dying off. Their stuff was ending up in an estate sale would then show up in an antique store for five bucks a piece and 20 bucks on the rack and, you know, they might be worth three or 400 bucks or whatever, you know. And so yeah. I was just buying these things up like crazy as I was touring because I'd go every day to antique stores yeah. all over the country. And got to know the estate market really well and all about all the old brands and everything. And then just came so enamored with the wood and the pipes and the shapes. I was like, man, I want to try to make one. It'd be fun to make one. Mm -hmm. And bought a kit. You know, it was like a... The block of wood with a pre-made stem stuck in it here, and you know it's all is it, is it out, kind of you know? kind of like like a Boy Scout? You get your little pine wood. <laughs> yeah, it's kit. basically like that. <laughs> it's got some <laughs> some racing stripes you can put on there. <laughs> yeah, and start you know carved out a pipe, and oh that was fun. Just so bought more kits. Had you and, been a woodworker before that? I mean, were you, really. so, so you were learning how to do all that. Yeah, I mean, I I had messed around with some tools a little bit when I was in high school. My my mom and dad, it was, it was really my mom's thing where she started uh, making kind of these little, you know, like antique knickknack things, replica things. It ended up growing into a business of, of designer teddy bears, believe it or not, which is exact, which <laughs> really mirrors the pipe world exactly. Really? Like they, she used to do the same things, make these high end teddy bears. Go around and do shows, sell to people. All and it's the it's funny looking back that how similar those things that is wild really were. But anyway, so she had so we had tools around. So you know I would kind of help the business a little bit and cut things out on the bandsaw and something. So I mean you know I'd use the tools a little bit, but it's nothing yeah. like piping. Piping is very technical. I mean you're down to you know, half of a thousandth of an inch on certain things and just stuff that you, that need to be really, really precise. And wow. that was nothing like that. And, uh, yeah. So I started fiddling around. Just, just, there was no information about making pipes out there. So I was just making it up, trying to figure out how to do stuff. Hmm. How, how can I do this? Just trying to problem solve, you know? Yeah. And uh, so my buddy, who was the buyer, he was like, well, you know, these are, these are pretty, pretty good. Maybe I should, I want to get you in touch with some of these Danish masters, you know. Maybe they can get you some better materials or, you know, give you some advice or whatever. So he starts putting me on the phone with these guys. <laughs> and I'm like, um, don't know what to say. Or but they were very gracious. And, and um, uh, one carver in particular, a guy named Jos Kodovich, started selling me briar, which is the wood that you make pipes out of. And some of the ebonite, which is what you make the stems out of, and these are all very specialized materials and were really difficult to get back in the day. Mm. You really had to kind of know someone. And um, so he started helping me with that. And then 
sort of advice, and then another carver named uh, Lars Everson um, was instrumental in kind and of, just kind of helping me along. I ended up flying over there to Denmark and working in their shops for a couple of weeks, and hmm. and that was. And this is while uh, you're in the news boys. Yeah, while I'm in the news boys. <laughs> Doing all this other stuff. The first guy, actually, who really took notice was a guy named J.T. Cook from Vermont. And he was, like, a pretty famous American pipe carver. Okay. and But he was a musician, so, like, we there used to be a show here in Nashville, a pipe show. And uh, they would have it at the, at the, uh, I think they had it at the Opryland Hotel, maybe? I, don't, I, can't, I can't remember now. But um, we... Um, we uh, we had tables next to each other and just hit it off, you know. And he was talking to me about the pipes and he was like, "Well, how are you doing this?" And when you know, I would explain, and he just just laugh and shake his head, you know. He's like, "Man, you're doing you're doing everything but chewing these things out of the wood. Said, Why don't you come up to my shop? Let me show you the right tool for the job." Huh. And uh, I'm like, "Yeah." So like two months later, I flew to Vermont with a you know. Old school video camera from back in the day, you know, <laughs> and uh, he just showed me how to make these tools, and because at that time there was no, you know, so you had to make your own. Yeah, because you know there wasn't any, you know, pipe tool depot that you could go to to buy the things that you needed. You had to, you know, modify other tools and, and make things. Wow. And uh, now there actually is places you can go to buy the tools. Sure. Because guys have you know taking that on but um but back then yeah you were making everything and uh yeah so i made one pipe but i just like videotaped everything and he showed me all this stuff and then i went home i retooled my whole shop bought lays bought all this stuff no real idea how to use it i mean i used his once Mm-hmm. And I just watch wow. videos. You know, like, it's like okay, when I bought a compressor so in my first studio. Like, yeah. I know I need one of these. I don't know what it does. Yeah, so. <laughs> but I tell you, it, it it made all the difference in the world. Like instantly, like, mm. the, like suddenly, it was like, oh, okay, now these are starting to look like pipes. <laughs> you know? Wow. And uh, so, yeah, the right tool for the job is a big deal. Yeah. But, so uh, okay, so you're you get into this world. Um, are you selling them through that shop? Like, are yeah. you are you making them on the road? Like, are you making no? At th- this so time you're still I, in the just, band at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're we're you know, I just you know I built out a shop at home and just kind of you know every day I was home I would just get up in the morning and go in the shop, start working on pipes and you know really obsessed with that whole thing. Uh, then my friends started talking them up, you know. Uh, at the, you know, the big buyer at Uptowns and, you know, talking them up along with all these other, like, high-end pipes and it was, like, very undeserved wow. <laughs> attention there. But, you know, fortunately, those, like... they're not cheap. I mean, those are in the hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah. and so, yeah, yeah it, eventually my skill level rose to the, you know, level that it needed to be. But at first, you know, it was like, ooh. But, hmm. um, so, yeah, so, you know, started getting collected and and uh guys you know were buying everything i was making at the time and which wasn't you know a lot of pipes every year because of course we were touring a lot and uh 
So that brought us up to this point where. So your daughter, yeah, yeah. your daughter's born. It takes a lot. You got to come off the road. Yeah. There's, you've got this side business. Yeah. And you moved to Arizona. Yep. Moved out to Arizona. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, then it was like, all right, well, you know, I can't, if I'm going to do this, I probably can't wholesale these pipes. I've got to, you know, I've got to make every penny or I'm not going to be able to make a living, you know? So it's like, all right, start a website, you know, start all this. And this is, you know, it was a more difficult thing to do back then. Yeah. No square space. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so yeah, I got, got that going. But you know, the, it was a small world and word of mouth was a big thing. And going to the the shows, the pipe shows, which are like these conventions, that was a big deal. You know, that was where you really uh, made your mark, you know, because mm -hmm. everybody, all the real collectors would come out. Guys would fly from Japan, China, all over Europe. They come to like the Chicago show, which still goes on. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, so... And it started started uh, getting traction and and uh, selling pipes was able to you know charge enough that I could make a decent living at it and be able it was a you know I I really consider the whole thing very much a a godsend even 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 the fact that I worked in intensive care uh, before I ever got into uh, doing music full time. Because when all these things went down with my daughter and, you know, you're in intensive care for five weeks, they basically sent her home to die. Hmm. And, I mean, we left intensive care and went home. That's not really how that's supposed to yeah. go. <laughs> you, you get downgraded yeah. to the regular room. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's... Wow. And so... Um, but having had the experience and, and you know, of... of doing that work I wasn't intimidated by the situation hmm. you know I knew you know when things were going wrong and you showed up and you had to go into the hospital and they were in a room I knew that was the best place for her to be yeah. and I knew that everything was being done at that point that you know needed to be done for her you know hmm. and, and and so and, and and then just having the knowledge uh, to be able to do the care and to have, you know, she had all kinds of like, oximeters and, you know, suction, can you know, all this kind of stuff that, that was at our house. And, you know, you had oxygen and you had all these things, but I already knew all this stuff. So mm. it wasn't hard for me to manage all that. And so, you know, that was great to have had that experience. And... Then to be able to be a pipe maker while she was so young and so fragile was great because I was there yeah, 24-7 working with her there. So I could manage her care, do whatever needed to be done here, and then I, when I, you know, I, I'd go back to work, and then I'd just go back over and do what, you know. It was, so it was just... Yeah. What it, you can't was, do when you're on a Perfect bus scenario, and, yeah. Yeah, Akron. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, so, so how, it was. How long were you in Arizona then? Did you have other other kids? Yes. Well, it, I was in Arizona for about five years. Okay. So uh, I was making pipes. Unfortunately, the 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 marriage did not survive. But 
my daughter did, so that was great. And so she's still, she just turned 18. Wow. And uh, and is staying healthy and, and doing well. And So, yeah, so we're there, you know, that whole thing. Well, you know, marriage ends up falling apart, all this kind of stuff. So then, you know, I meet this other woman there, and we've now been married for almost 13 years and we have three other daughters so wow. I, have, I have four daughters <laughs> wow how old are your daughters your other daughters uh, the other the other daughters are are 10 8 and 4 okay i have three daughters as well they're 14 nice. 12 and 7 tomorrow yeah wow. well there you go that's yeah girls yeah. man yeah yeah I don't. I don't know how you were, but when the, with the last one, everybody was like, "Oh, I bet you hope you're having a boy." And I'm like, "No, <laughs> I already have all the stuff, man." It's like that would really just mess everything up. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Oh, I love it. I love it. So, you guys met in Arizona? Yeah. So, yeah, I married two different women from Yuma, Arizona, of all places. <laughs> There's a country song in that, man. There is. There uh, is, for sure. <laughs> so, uh, so then, at what point do you move back to Nashville? At what point do you get back in the music business? Like, well, yeah, well, that that was the thing. I, I, I literally, I, I had I put my head down and, and dug in so hard to, to making the pipe thing work and taking care of my daughter that I had barely touched a guitar in five years. I mean, just... Mm. Just my, that just wasn't where my head was at all. Yeah. And uh, let's see. I know that uh, for a little while, uh, you know, Brian Olson came in. I remember that. Kind of yeah. Filled in there. And then, so then they got Paul Coleman to come in. And then, I, you know, I just think he just aspired to do other things. So he was going to leave. And so. You know, they were, they were like, let's see what Joni's doing. <laughs> let's see if we can get him back on board. And they called, and you know, the funny thing was, if it would have been three months earlier, I would have said, no, nah, there's no way. And uh, it just, the timing, things were just fell into place. And, you know, my thought was like, well, I'm already doing this pipe thing anyway. If I go do the spring tour and it doesn't seem like it's going well, I'll just come back. You know, yeah. I'm just I'm gonna continue. Making so you didn't pipes. like come back like, all right, guys, I'm back. You're like, I'll do some shows. Well, you know, well, at least that was what was going on in my mind. Anyway, yeah. I, I I just didn't feel like I had anything to lose, mm -hmm. really. And I've always loved Nashville and wanted to come back because I just loved the area. No matter what I was doing, if I wasn't playing music. This is where I I love you know this this part of the country and love living here, so I was excited about the idea of coming back to Nashville. Uh, my wife Laurie had never lived anywhere else but Yuma, so I was kind of excited about you're gonna you know this is a whole different thing. And Yuma is that a big town? It, I mean it's it's um, I literally only know the title 310 to Yuma. It's yeah, like my it, only perception of what Yuma is. It's one of, it's one of those towns that doubles in size in the winter because of all the snowbirds. Got it. So I think with all the snowbirds maybe there's 200,000 people. Okay, okay. I mean it's So it's yeah. 
It seems smaller than it is because of the way it's laid out. There's a lot of farming there. In fact, I think like 90% of the lettuce or something comes from Yuma. There's, there's all kinds of – they grow the stuff that you never think about like – Broccoli, like where's broccoli get from? <laughs> Grows in Yuma. <laughs> you Why know? not? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just like lettuce. It has and to things. go somewhere. Yeah, it's well, they got you know temperatures that they can grow stuff all year round. It's yeah, huh? Yeah, that yeah, man. Those summers, I was glad to get back to Nashville. If that tells you anything. I think the hottest day what I saw when we were living there was 124. <laughs> No. Everybody's like, "Oh, it's a dry heat." Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You go stand outside in 120 degrees. Yeah, yeah you're not. See dry. what you think yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. So you cut. So you do you hop back on the road? Like, at what point do you move back? And how how's that transition back into that? Well, the funny part about that was, uh, I'm I'm I, I drive to Phoenix. And I'm getting on the plane. As I'm walking through the airport, I get a phone call from Steve, one of our managers. He's like, "Hey, uh, when you get here, we're gonna um, we're gonna, we're gonna go over to Wes's and have a little meeting." I'm like, "Okay." I'm like, "Am I in trouble already? I haven't even showed up yet." <laughs> he's like, "He's like, no. Um, uh, well, uh, Pete's coming off the road." I'm like. Oh, okay. oh, yeah. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> Forgot yeah. about that. It's not the same time. <laughs> yeah, so so I'm like, well, you know, I'm kinda, I'm committed now, so I'm just going well, to just go. Just yeah. It's all good. <laughs> you know, let's see what happens. So he's like, well, we're, we're, we've are we been talking to Michael Tate about coming out. I'm like, okay, let's Check it out. See what you know. So your what so can I your do? first show back with them was with him as the lead singer. Yes, but you know, if, you know, we tried to do this transition thing, um, and also we ran into a lot of issues with promoters because they were because we had all these shows booked out, and then Pete's coming off the road, and then you tell the promoter, and they're like, "Oh, well, we need a reduction then." Or, oh, uh, well, we don't. That's yeah. not the band we booked. And we're like, hey, yeah. on, you know, no, no, this is going to be great. You know, you're trying to convince them, these promoters, and they were just. Uh, were you guys trying I mean, to convince yourself? A lot yourself? of these guys are like were you putting like, their we... house on the line for these yeah. shows. You know, of course they're going to, you know, have cold feet, you know. Yeah. So uh, for a little while, it was Pete came out for a little while, and he would like do part, a little bit of the show, and then Tate would do most of it. And, and man, it was brutal at first. I mean, because sometimes you would go out there and we would all come to the front of the stage at the beginning of the show before it started. We all came out and give this little talk about how Pete was coming off the road, but Michael Tate was going to be singing. So you would prep the crowd. Right. We, we would prep them. And literally, sometimes you would fully get booed. No. Before you even started. <laughs> it's a great way to start a show. <laughs> We're like, uh but, you know, Tate's just, he's a lovable guy, and he's a great singer, and he just, he would always, he's very endearing, you know. Yeah. Just would always well, they win, knew who he was, Win the crowds over. A lot, well, you know, some of them didn't, because DC Talk hadn't been a thing for almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, so you had a lot of younger kind of kids who were like, eh. Who's this guy? Yeah, they didn't, they didn't know. And... uh but one of the one of the things I think that 
it, it was a great move because when you look at radio, like all these programmers, of course, were old fans of DC Talk sure. and old fans of Newsboys. Well, they wanted to hear that, you know, coming together of the two. This bands. was how long ago? Was this three years ago? Four years ago? I don't know. This was 2009. Was it that long ago? <laughs> yeah. This was like 10 years ago. I, I literally feel like, <laughs> wow, I'm old, man. Time is just moving uh, way too you. fast. Let me tell you. Yeah, so. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it was uh, it was quite a thing. So you've been back with them then for yeah, 10 for, years. For as long as I was in the band before, so. Wow. Okay. So how was it coming back? Like what would it feel like for you, for your life, for your new family? Um, well, it, you know, I, Laurie was excited about coming to Nashville. And so, and at that time we had Violet, which, which you know, was my second daughter. So She's a baby so, at that point. Yeah, she's a baby. Bethany, who was the, the oldest daughter, she was staying with her mom there in Arizona just because of all the medical things and all the different stuff. She doesn't travel very well, for one thing. Yeah. But um, it just, yeah. All things considered, that was the best situation sure. for her to stay in that network that she was already in, 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 in of care and things. So... It was just me and Laurie and Violet, and, you know, we came, and Laurie was just like, man, I love this place. Mm. <laughs> so so she loved Nashville, loved the green, loved all that, you know, because, I mean, Yuma is, yeah. it's as desert as it gets. You don't even see cactus. There's so much desert, you know, it's, it's so dry there. And uh, so, I mean, it has its own character, but yeah, growing up in the Midwest, this was just... You know, yeah, wanted to get back to it, but anyway, yeah. So, so that was that was cool. She had never like the funny thing is when I met Laurie, she never knew me as a musician. So, yeah, well, that, and that's always the challenge I think when people people like a, a young family moves to Nashville, somebody gets a gig on the road, and then they leave immediately. Yeah, and then this other person is stuck in this new town, going, <laughs> "What do I do with this baby?" I mean, like that's a you know, that's a story that happens. Yeah. So how how did you guys handle that? Well, fortunately, because I had lived here for so long before, mm -hmm. I had tons of, you know, I had this whole group of people who were just excited that we were coming back. Yeah. You know, so I had a lot of friends and a lot of people, and who were, I mean, I'm not going to say it was easy for Laurie at all because she was like, holy cow, what is going on? Like, it was weird for her to, like, come into the situation of this whole life that I had had and all these people and all, and that she had never <laughs> and you probably seen or knew anything about. And, and this is not like, a your, your daily existence, yeah. so you're not talking about these people. It's just like, <laughs> no, it was, oh, it was good Lord, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> it's completely surreal for her. You yeah. Know? And, uh, but, you know, everybody was just, you know, so welcoming and excited. And I think that really helped a lot. And then, you know, there was just that adjustment of, of like, all right, well, how do I do all this stuff? And he's not here. Cause I was home 24 seven practically as a pipe maker. Yeah. You know? So 
so yeah, there was there was some adjustment, but I think you know, she's just really great. I mean, I don't know how to explain it. She's she's you know, it's good. She's just. But you're you're still making pipes. Yeah. So what does that look like now? Um. Well, a few years ago, I you know I started for the longest time there. I was just making them. As I was home, we get we get home a lot now. So mm-hmm. What we what we had developed was a touring system to where we go out, we play four shows in a row, and then mm-hmm. we're home three days a week. This is when we're on tour, mm-hmm. so we're home every week, and mm-hmm. you know it's not like we stay out for months at a time. Yeah, the longest we ever you're not stay driving out, the bus anymore. No, not doing that. Yeah, but um, you know, longest we ever stay out is maybe ten days. Okay. If we go to the West Coast, and usually we'll do a couple of runs like that, but we'll fly home in between, so that we just stay in rhythm, active with the family all the time. And it's a whole different ball game now. I mean, you got FaceTime, and you text. I mean, back in the '90s, I would like, you know, every the rule was every other day you find a pay pay phone with your with your little card, oh, yeah. and you're punching in all these numbers, and you're hoping somebody's home, you know? Yeah. A little tape machine recording your messages. And, <laughs> you know, it was all different. Everybody piles out of the van, and they just wait in the gas station to talk, call their girlfriend. That was my first van. You know? Yeah, that's, you know. Your, now it's like. Your 800-pin number. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, I, now I talk to my wife, you know, text or talk or FaceTime like 10 times a day. You know, it's just yeah. a whole different thing. You're not completely disconnected like you used to be. So that's that's a real plus for technology, and uh, so. But so you're making pipes when you're home. Oh yeah, oh, we were talking about pipes. Yeah. And, um, uh, so yeah, and I just realized, man, I got so much more downtime on the road than I do at home. So I'm like, all right, can I? Caveat to this. I decided I wanted to build myself a guitar. <laughs> okay. And so I started doing it on the road. So I would I would look at the shows, um, how long we were going to be out, what I needed to get done for those 4 days generally. And then I would just take the tools I needed hmm. to do that work for those 4 days. Yeah. Cuz I had all this downtime. Especially we were I think we had done a winter jam tour and I mean you don't even go on to like ten thirty. Yeah, at night. And you play thirty five minutes. And I get there at nine in the morning. It's like, what do you do with yourself all yeah. day? So I was building guitars. Started building guitars. And what kind uh, of guitars? Hmm? Like, what kind of guitars are you building? Electric guitars, like hollow body, all like kinds Tele of kind of th- like what? Um, just all kinds of things. Well, I mean, mostly, mostly solid body electrics. I did kind of a couple of thin line type okay. things as well. Um, awesome. But you know, there again, when I decided I was going to do it, yeah, I went all in. I wound the pickups. I did oh, dude. everything. <laughs> made everything on the guitar I could possibly make. I even, I even made some of the like, uh, on on the first, you know, on a few of them, I made the whole like bridge plate like are you for real yeah like fabricated because it all tied in together i'll show you pictures of yes please <laughs> but uh 
Yeah, so I started doing that, and, and my thought was at the time that I would never be able to do pipes on the road because I've got my processes down, and I just don't think I could, like, change up my processes and and be able to feel motivated to make pie. you know if if it becomes a lot more work than it normally is you're just like uh uh-uh, I'm not going to do that you know <laughs> so so but, but you've built a name like I've I I googled you like when you google Jody Davis it, it, you know google auto fills in the things uh-huh. it says Jody Davis pipes and then Jody Davis news <laughs> right like dude that's a big deal we yeah we like we kind of band we kind of laugh because they're like it's eh, more famous in the pipe world than he is in the music world but i mean because you've done like those pipes sell for a lot of money like, people are <laughs> nuts about them like you well the the thing about the thing about that you know it's one of those sort of timing things what i was doing what i because of those danish carvers right mm-hmm. the, and the influence of what they were doing they were like in the in the 90s that was like the big thing because it was you know danish design the quality of the the make was so much better than everything that was coming out Mm. everywhere else um and the shapes were so unique and just how they used the grain and the wood and all these things well nobody was really doing that type of thing in the u.s Mm. and so there was a couple of us me and this other guy todd johnson um we were both aspiring to to that hmm. about at the same time we actually and then we met and so we kind of kind of worked together a little bit he he had actually gone over to another guy this Tom Iltang another Danish carver and he had worked over there so he had learned a lot of these techniques which was a whole other style, way of making pipes and he had showed me a little bit of what that was, and then I went over to Denmark and then really got to see how it was done. And But no other American pipe makers were working in that way and even knew how to do that kind of thing. So we were the only guys who were doing like the traditional like French-English style of pipe making or, or how, how pipes were made and also doing this Danish way, which was completely different. Huh. And... So, and then our pipes were along that influence, which nobody in the U.S. was really doing. Now, every pipe maker in the U.S. Really? That's how they make pipes. And that's the way their pipes look. And that's the way, you know, it's just like, so we're kind of... You got ahead of that curve. Right. We're kind of considered the the godfathers of the modern American pipe maker. So that's because (laughs) just, you know, it was just timing. And, you know, the reason was... I was probably one of the only guys who got to see every one of those Danish pipes when they came into the U.S. because mm. they all went through Uptowns, and then I would because go this, there because that yeah. sh- shop here was like the main distributor in the U.S. Right, and they wouldn't. I mean, they wouldn't put them out in the store. My buddy hmm. Keith, he had all these collectors. He'd get them all in, and then he'd start calling these collectors and start selling all these pieces. Well, when he'd get them in, he would call me, and I would come over, and I would just examine all these pipes wow nobody i mean nobody in this country had that kind of access to what they were doing wow and and that hugely influenced what i was doing Hmm. which turned out to be the direction that everybody ended up going after me so yeah so okay so and and todd as well yeah so to catch up so now so now you you've established yourself as 
a godfather of American pipe making. Right. <laughs> Your own words. <laughs> and, and then, and then, well, you, I, did, I didn't coin that phrase, but that, <laughs> I'm just repeating it. Yeah, but then you join also like. Kind of like the guy, like like the newsboys are like kind of godfathers of like modern American Christian music too. I mean, like there's a hugely influential band, and who's still really relevant, and people are, you guys have a hit after hit, and so people are uh, coming to these shows, and and you get you join the band again, and you decide, okay, I want to I want to start being productive in the days you've been making guitars. How do how do you then incorporate pipe making into sort of your road life? Like, what does it look like currently? Right. Well, I ended up realizing when I after I built some of these guitars on the road, I'm like, oh, I could probably come up with a process that would be good. For do doing, you have to deal with like humidity pipes. or temperature, or any of that kind of stuff? Does it matter? Well, I mean, everything I'm working on, I definitely keep like in a fairly controlled environment. Like, mm-hmm. I don't put anything under the bus or anything like that. Do you have, you know, like, cases that you roll on? I have, my for pie making, I have a really killer um, set of cases where I have the, uh, the bottom case is a dust collector and then a set of drawers and then a pull-out workbench hmm. that locks. And then it just it has panels that come off the front. And then I run a little tube up from there, and the bag comes out the side. It's like takes me five minutes. So you have like a whole on portable shop, right? And then on top of that case sits a lathe that's in a case, and you pop the top off of that. So you got the lathe. I use that motor for everything else: shaping wheels, for buffing wheels, for all this stuff. So the the lathe motor is for everything, and I do all the lathe work as well. And so it's like two cases built for a truck pack, size wise, uh, built by OCD Labs. Little plug for them, uh, my buddy Jeff Nolte, and he was so excited to do something so unique. You know, yeah, because it's we not had, an amp had, and yeah, yeah, we had we had a lot of fun snare drums. That's awesome doing that build. But I bet. But uh, I, you got to send me a picture of it. I'm I'm so curious to see this. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And uh, he put my logo on the side and all this stuff. Oh know? come on, it's, it's really killer. How fun is that? People see it. Well, I you know we 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 just come off of Winter Jam, and I mean that rolls off the truck, and I set it up somewhere. I try to find a room because if I don't, if I'm set up in an area where people can see me. All I do is answer questions. Oh, <laughs> and it's the same question. I would just be like, "All right, what's that? What are you doing?" Right? Tell me that. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> and it's when you tell somebody you're making pipes, it's that's you know that doesn't tell the whole story. So that they're, they're kind of like, like, so you're a plumber? No, no. <laughs> so what? You blow glass? No, I'm not. I'm not making paraphernalia. I'm making, you know, like pipes, like your grandpa would smoke or something, you know. Then they kind of, oh, okay. Yeah, it's just a thing you don't hear. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. <clears throat> so so you could, I mean, but I know that world. Like, when you're not playing until later in the night and you guys roll in it, like you said, like, you have a full work day. Yeah. And, you know, some dudes are like, I want to go find the cool coffee shop and whatever. Like, <laughs> okay, I've done that. I've been, yeah, yeah. So, so you put in your full work day. That's amazing. Yeah, it's great. And so what is that? Use so when, time. when you get home then, are you able to just kind of like, all right, I've worked two jobs all weekend. <laughs> well, 
kind of. Um, yeah, I mean, there's certain things that I still do at home that to kind of finish them out. Or, sure. Uh, and stuff, you know. And I'll, I'll kind of do that. I, I try to not do a ton of work. My problem is, is I have that thing anytime I, I something I like I want to know so I've got all these other projects and I tend to overcommit so I've got like <laughs> guitars I got to build for people oh, no. for the last three years that I, that I maybe started or haven't I've got you know I'm just constantly I can't I can't sit still for one thing yeah. for any length of time and my brain is always racing about something you know so yeah. you know I might be I don't know making sausage or roasting coffee or you know, it's just everything I like, I just dive into. So, the godfather of American sausage. That's, that's, why I'm <laughs> say, that's why I'm saying it's a problem because I just, I, oh man, I just fill, fill up my time. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, <laughs> I'm trying to figure at out, least I'm trying you're to filling to it with learn like how to manage it. Useful things, you know? Well, hopefully. It's, it's uh, <laughs> I told myself a while back that I was not going to have any hobbies that I couldn't maybe feed my family with one day. And so, but you know, that, yeah. So I don't play golf. You know? <laughs> Man, that's amazing. Well, so if people want to see your work as a pipe maker or a guitar maker, like, are there other places to find that stuff online? Well, guitar stuff, um, not really. That's just kind of you for could, friends. You and... could look at my Instagram, and there's some some pictures of builds. And stuff. Uh, that's just Jay Davis pipes, actually. Got it. And you can see a lot of pipe stuff on there. I it's been a long time since I've updated any of that because yeah, like your said, website says you live in Arizona. Stuff, yeah, I right? don't. I don't really like <laughs> social media, and so I don't participate much. And but anyway, there, there's that. Um, I have a website which hasn't been updated in a long time, but there's hundreds of pictures of pipes, um, and if, if you know, you know, and if people are interested in pipes, you get on my email list. And I, when I have something available, I do an email blast. And usually, most of the time, things everything sells from that. Yeah. Um, I have one dealer. It's smokingpipes.com. You can go to there. You can find me on their site. And basically, I sell to them so that they can actually do the promoting because I don't have any time to do any of the shows yeah. or do any promoting. So, hmm. And they're the biggest online... Got you it. know, pipe shop in the world. So, wow. Um, and they, I've known them ever since they've started. They're all good friends of mine, and they care about the history and the legacy of pipes. So, it was a really good fit to be with them because they can promote yeah. that. So, you have two whole different sort of circles of relationships and networks. And yeah, that's wild. Okay. Well, am I, uh, let me, and I want to end with this question. When somebody, because you, you're doing so many things, I wonder what, what uh, that, what how you feel about sort of your place in all those different worlds, <laughs> the, and the the way that the way that I, I think to ask this is like, if you sit next to a stranger on an airplane and they're like, so what do you do? Like, what do you say? <laughs> you know, I just gotta feel out the situation. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you think you do? Well, I do you mean, feel like I'm a full time all these things. Well, I do feel that way sometimes, but um, I usually, you know, will will say, "Oh, I play, I play in a band." 
pretty much. I mean, that's my my. I guess I can say my. I mean, in some ways, you know, I can say I, the majority of my living and and kind of what I have have always felt called to do in my life has been play music. And yeah. So I think I always probably go there first, and then, you know. People dig deeper than I might bring it up, <laughs> pipe making or whatever. <laughs> but, but you know, it's you know we're all very complicated human beings, so <laughs> we do. <a> lot. <laughs> There's a lot of things going on. I mean, you could say, "Well, I'm a dad." That's what I am. Yeah. If you wanted to. Well, that's good. That's good, <laughs> man. Well, thanks for your time. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Jody. So after we turned off the mics, Jody pulls out his phone and starts pulling up pictures of other stuff that he's built. Turns out that all the guitars the band plays, he built from scratch, not a kit. He puts in the truss rod, winds the pickups, the whole deal, and they look awesome. That's insane. So you can visit newsboys.com to see those guitars and what the band is up to. They're about to start a new tour with Michael W. Smith, which is my junior high dream come true. Uh, you can also go to jodydavispipes.com where you can sign up for his mailing list, which is really the only way you can learn more because when he said he doesn't update his website, he meant it. But honestly, if you're curious, just Google J. Davis Pipes and read what comes up. It is fascinating. People are fanboys. It is wild. Please, please visit compassion.com slash the pivot where you can sponsor a child now for just $38 a day. Release a child from poverty in Jesus' name. We're so thankful that they're partnering with us couldn't believe in the work they do anymore. We'll be back next Tuesday, and uh, the next two weeks of interviews, they go deep, and they are wonderful, and I cannot wait to share them with you. So please check back in on Tuesday. Thank you guys for listening, and now go do something awesome. Mm-hmm.